This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Well, we've reached a point where the news is almost as disturbing as you can imagine um, uh, about the conduct of our government. And uh, to be honest, it's to be expected. Um, When you talk about human motivation, incentives for human beings, one of the most obvious ones is if you get away with it, you'll do it again. If you do something that everyone's told you is wrong, but there's no penalty, you'll do it again. You know, it's just it's as obvious as anything. And what you know, what we know in America is uh, we got a system and rules. We got laws, the Constitution. It's supposed to hold people accountable, and and I think it's failed. So we're going to talk about that right now. It's Ed Martin. It's the Pro-America Report. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. Two things can happen there. One is you can sign up for the daily email. Just put your email address in, and I will send it to you every morning, Monday through Friday, weekday mornings at 8 a.m. East Coast, 5 a.m. Pacific, and every hour in between if you're in Mountain or Central or all the rest. And uh, it's it's what you need to know, the Daily Wink. Very popular with people. Gives you a couple of links, key points, and makes what I think is what you need to know. And so that's that. The other thing that happen when you visit ProAmericaReport.com is you can go and there's thousands and thousands of standalone links as well as a podcast of this show where you can uh, you can go ahead and listen to these great interviews we've had. We have some of the best interviews, uh, authors, politicians, all kinds of people. You're going to want to do that. So ProAmericaReport, uh, excuse me, ProAmericaReport.com. Okay, so what am I talking about when I tell you that what you need to know today is unmasking unmasking is what's happened to Tucker Carlson and it's the same thing that happened to Mike Flynn and dozens of others at the end of the Obama administration it was done by admission by Susan Rice it was done after Obama lost excuse me Clinton lost and Trump won in November of 2016 and they went about unmasking I think it was up to 30 but I'd have to check to be sure But it was some big number of people who were unmasked, meaning uh, that they were they had to go. And in, in national security circles, if an American citizen is being monitored and and there is not a reason to put their name in the documents, you don't do that because when you pass around a national security uh, document, especially a briefing at the top levels of government goes to dozens and dozens of people. And so there's a secrecy, a protection in the case of Susan Rice, when when she requested on behalf of her uh, her her office, which was the President of the United States, which he has the power to unmask anything, just like the President of the United States has the power to declassify anything whenever he wants. And so, you know, because the President is the head of the executive branch, he can say, I declassify everything if he wants. He's got that authority. So Susan Rice, in 2016, after the November election, she started unmasking all these people. And it was a setup. The setup was unmask them all so that you could then let the outsiders leak it. And when it was leaked, it was um, then able to become the story. And it's how the Russia, Russia, Russia investigation was done. Uh, it's I mean, how that hoax was perpetrated. It was how they went after Mike Flynn. Unmasking by Susan Rice was absolutely positively wrong, and it should have been investigated and she should have been prosecuted i have to think there was some way to hold her accountable at the very least there should have been a requirement that she explain why she was unmasking all these people okay 
And so the only thing, the only thing, you, absent some sort of investigation to find out any rationale, which has not been clear to the public, the only rationale that is clear is targeting your political enemies, trying to cause problems for your political enemies. There was no national security issue that anyone can see. You know, and by the way, Mike Cernovich did this. He he actually wrote about this. And uh, he broke the story of Susan Rice. And when he did, there were they wrote about it and they said, oh, it's no big deal. I mean, it's not no big deal, but this is what has to happen. I mean, people have to do this. And, you know, she's uh, she I, when she was unmasking all these Trump aides. Oh, you know, that was just a thing. And, and in fact, as Cernovich tweeted about this, he was right then. And what happened, as he pointed out, was when it became clear that it was happening, the media and the establishment went about saying, well, what? she's got to do that. She's got a right to do it. She's got to do it. And there's nothing to see here. Tucker Carlson had the same thing happen. If you believe that the NSA only found his electronic communications because he was talking to someone with ties to Russia, and I'm not sure I believe that. I don't know why I would believe him in anything. But if that's true, he should have never been unmasked. In other words, he should have had his identity protected. He was not the target of the investigation. Instead, he was unmasked and leaked. Because, by the way, if you leak someone who's not been unmasked, if you leak someone who's masked, that's a real serious crime. That's a known crime. They'll get prosecuted. But if someone's unmasked, somehow it lowers it. Does, well, not somehow. It lowers the threshold of the problem, you know, of what you've done. So my point here is think about what happened when Biden was in the vice presidency, when he was vice president, he was in the Oval Office and he was saying, oh, yeah, let's go after Flynn on the Logan Act. And that was always that's, I mean, that was a suggestion. That's what they did. But the other person in the room was Susan Rice with all the other apparatus. And she was the one that was unmasking everybody, unmasking Trump aides, causing all this chaos and then fostering it on the outside. She's back in power. She was then a national security advisor. Now she's a domestic policy advisor. She's running things. When people say who's running the White House, it's Susan Rice. And so suddenly we have the NSA targeting. Again, we don't know anything yet because we can't get to read their minds. But the the only plausible inference, well, let's say it differently. One plausible inference inference could be others. I I, I can't th- I can't think of any others that are plausible. One plausible inference is they're unmasking the people that they don't like, their political enemies. And by the way, now we have a track record. And again, my point here is to take this full circle. When you have a an American culture that that at least, at least preaches accountability when laws are broken and demands accountability when it's publicly noted. I'm not saying that there's not people that did something wrong that that pay their lawyers a lot of money and they somehow get off this. And I'm not saying it's a perfect system, but there is a system that says you're held accountable. And Susan Rice and her unmasking from four plus years ago was not held held accountable. In fact, she was praised, as I just said to you, Cernovich points out, she was praised for what she did. Oh, yeah, we got to do it. And so what the lesson was from the people that had uh, have the opportunity to target people is, yeah, you can get away with it. And that's where we are right now. The NSA is not apologizing. They're not saying this. They did something wrong. No one is. I, I haven't heard someone say they're going to investigate why Tucker Carlson was unmasked. You know, Andy uh, Sarabian, who uh, who is a uh, political guy and does a lot of bunch of a lot of stuff. Um, and uh, and Sarabian actually tweeted something I thought was pretty good. He said, you know, now that this has happened, what could the quote national security justification be for unmasking Tucker Carlson? 
especially if it's because he was setting up an interview with a, a leader, an international leader, no matter what. So everybody does that. So, I mean, again, I think we would justify, maybe, maybe, if the uh, NSA is listening into any time a journalist goes and talks to the embassy, the Russian embassy, and says, hey, we want to interview Putin, that's probably okay, in the sense that they're listening to the operatives from the, from the Russians here. But what's not okay is that it's then leaked and unmasked. Both of those things are problems. One, it's leaked to Axios, a journalist. They leak Tucker's name. But, they, but, but uh, before that, it must have been unmasked. you got to think it's unmasked. And where's the investigation? And <clears throat> now you're going to see, discovered by the left, a commitment to uh, protecting journalism and what they're doing. And the leak, you can't go back. You can't go past the leak. We can't do it. And you know what? Somewhere, Ed Snowden, Julian Assange are saying, huh, I thought we were doing something, too, that was protected. But but my point here is, and, and here's what you what you need to know now, is if Susan Rice can unmask General Flynn and dozens of other Trump aides, and now we have Tucker being unmasked, you understand that they don't think they're going to be held accountable and they're targeting their political enemies? You understand that Lois Lerner was a warm-up at the IRS when she targeted Tea Party groups? And destroyed some of them, put them through hell. I know there's some of them personally. This unmasking scandal is is unmasking a rottenness. It's unmasking a rottenness in America. And the people that are back in power, Susan Rice, Joe Biden, are getting away with it again. Again. And they're not going to stop. No, they don't think anything can stop them. They're righteous. In their minds, they're righteous, and they're going to keep going. And frankly, they won't stop. They won't stop. They won't stop. They'll be coming for you and me. All right, let's take a break. We'll be right back. Ed Martin on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. You've heard me talk a lot about great writers uh, over at American Greatness. I enjoy very much uh, that website, amgreatness.com. And I saw a couple days ago a piece uh, by an author I hadn't read before, and her name is Amina Milanic. And if you could follow her on Twitter, by the way, at Amina Milanic, which is important because it gives me a chance to spell her name, E-M-I-N-A-M-E-L-O-N-I-C. And uh, she's on Twitter at Amina Milanic. Uh, the, the piece was called Cinema in a Post-Human age. One of the things I love about American Greatness and Chris Buzzkirk and the team there is they're not just looking at politics, they're looking at everything that's going on. And this is um, uh, Amina Milanic is someone whose background, she's uh, she's originally from Bosnia, uh, she has a PhD in comparative literature, and she's written on these top- topics like this, on culture, on literature, uh, and uh, all over the place, the National Review, other places. And so first of all, uh, welcome Amina to the program. How are you? Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Ed. Well, so here's the question. The title is Cinema in a Post-Humanist Age. And then uh, the, 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 um, the idea, the assertion in this is that filmmakers and, and in general creative uh, uh, kind of activity has to transcend the absurdity of our age. And so, okay. And we go through this, and you talk a lot about different things. But first, let me say, it's such a crazy age. As a post-humanist is a, is a good, is a benign way to say it. I, in most of what people watch 
is so uh, hollow and so vapid and so silly. And, and uh, I mean, it, it, it's almost like, how do you, and, and I, I was in, I was in Hollywood once about five years ago and I was pitching an idea I had, which I won't bore the listeners or you with about an idea of, of a, of a show and all. And the guy said, look, it's a pretty good idea. But he said, I have to get, I have to find somebody to buy that. This was an agent. People want to buy and they, they, they buy and sell this junk. So how can you build cinema in a post-humanist age when no one will pay for it or watch it? Well, it's really strange, isn't it? And, you know, it's it's kind of, obviously in my article, I also ultimately come to the conclusion that we live in an anti-humanist age, anti-human age, really. And right. I think arts are just another casualty in many ways of this sort of approach to depersonalization. Um, now, of course, in the past, you had all kinds of movies that were bubblegum or that were horror, you know. <laughs> right, I'm, right. I'm actually a huge right. fan of B-movies, I have to tell you, but uh, I think what's, concurrently, what was always happening is that people were looking uh, and seeking uh, the meaning of these bigger questions, right? Bigger philosophical human questions. What does it mean to be a human being, right? And I think right. that's obviously completely missing, and I have to say, for me, uh, this is completely correlated to this kind of a globalist movement where we're meant to erase differences uh, between one another, whether it's their cultural or any other, um, and have imposed this some sort of like one world order where good and evil are really kind of not exactly differentiated properly. Uh, we're, we're, we're talking again now with uh, Amina Milanic and her pieces over at American Greatness. I'll put it up on social media. It, within that, in early on, you're talking about a, a, an, an author, um, excuse me, a filmmaker whose name I didn't know. I'm not particularly uh, uh, versed in this area, but he's referring to the newest Marvel release, Black Widow, which I was aware was coming out because I'd seen Scarlett Johansson. She stars in it. And he goes into this rant about how ridiculous he thought the whole thing was. He says he, he's embarrassed for Scarlett Johansson. He says it's just it's like a bad video game it goes on and on and on and and so and i know what you mean in the past there was always uh you know sort of uh bubblegum uh, films and all and there were light films but I, I guess the things that make the big money are these marvel things right so they're doing more and more of it and so here's what i want to transition i don't know if you've ever read james michener so michener wrote these massive books on subjects one on hawaii one on tales of the south pacific which but one of them is on poland and i'm in the middle of it and it's like i got a thousand pages but it's all about poland and it's got such flavor for the polish people and their history and i think to myself that guy was introducing his writing is introducing me to something that's broadening me and when you watch these movies there's nothing broadening it's kind of deadening and but back to my point where's the hope though um you know do you do you see um how i don't know it could turn on itself is there uh minor movies that are coming from other parts of the world that are that are more meaningful that might catch on i mean what's the next what could be well, I think generally there are more movies coming from uh, Europe. Uh, that's always probably been the case, to be honest with you. But now, right. um, I, personally, I don't even see a lot of good movies coming from Europe. Um, right. So I think that it really, ultimately, and which is obviously what I also say in my piece, is that an artist has to, a filmmaker has to have some level of courage to go out there and really do it. Of course, how do you do it? How do you make an independent film? And it has been done before, and you just have to put all of your life into it. And, you know, are you really willing to do that, right? 
But I think that the society today generally is working off of this um, uh, vapid sort of superficiality and quickness, right? Everything is moving so fast that right. we, we are experiencing information overload, which uh, I think definitely needs some sort of discourse, some sort of discussion, you know? So, and I think because of all of that, we're failing, consistently actually failing today to ask that that important question of what makes us human um, and really to to uh, you know almost remind people that there are such perennial things right perennial thoughts perennial questions that um, that will never die off uh, again, we're talking with uh, Amina Milanic, Dr. Amina Milanic, who's got a PhD in comparative literature, and she's an adjunct fellow at the Center for American Greatness. Um, and uh, I, she's got a recent piece. I'll put it up on social media. I'll probably retweet her. Um, you know, in there, you talk about um, you quote Martin Amos, and I hadn't thought of him in a long time. And I think he, I think I'm now I can't find the quote that I, but it's something like uh, all writing is trying to overcome cliche. You know, and and it seems to me one of the one of the real cheapening of of American films is it's just cliches. I mean, it's just so cliche written, but. Here's my next question. Do you see any hope in various periods in, in sort of the history of art? So broadly speaking, you had support come from, you know, uh, I don't know, the, the Florentines, you know, they, they, they invested in, in, uh, in a lot of the, not a lot of them, but some of the, the great artists and great sculptors and all. There was a, there was a, uh, an effort to underwrite it. And that doesn't seem to happen, at least it doesn't happen in the direction of what I would say is, uh, your point on more human centered film. Uh, you see somebody like, uh, Caviezel, uh, and Mel Gibson, they do the, uh, the movie on Christ. And I think they've got, I want to say Paul. But it's almost it's almost impossible to sustain. Why isn't there more uh, endowment of sort of the direction you're saying? Because it does have not only life, it has beauty in it. So if you could do it a lot, you'd get a lot of satisfaction, I think. Well, I think so, too. I agree with you. I, I think ideology has overwhelmed the society so much. Every, everything is uh, some sort of ideological and political game, right? And that includes the movie. Right. And, um, you know, I really don't watch a lot of it anymore that much because uh, certainly not the stuff that comes on Netflix or um, Amazon Prime or anything like that. And occasionally you'll, you'll get a get a, a good film, but uh, for the most part, there's always some sort of ideology that that overwhelms and takes over takes over the film. I, I still think there are a few things that do come out. I know Sundance uh, finances a lot of the independent uh, filmmakers, but you see, even the question right now or, or the idea of being an in, indie filmmaker right is is uh, has become almost a cliche um, so I think we have to figure out a way really to create new forms and uh, again I think to try to have courage uh, courage to do it because I, there has to be an acceptance that it may never be recognized but I think that's the that is the uh, the true meaning of art and of the artist well, and again, we're talking with uh, Amina Milanic, and it's at Amina Milanic on Twitter, and you can go uh, there. She's also got a, a Blogspot website. You click through there, and American Greatness is writing. Uh, I was recently reading a book called The Embers uh, by a um, Hungarian who basically 
everybody he was a great writer until he was about 35 then he got expelled from hungary came to america ultimately and nobody knew his family didn't even know he was a great writer and later they rediscovered his writings phenomenal writing and to your point uh, somehow <laughs> somehow some people have to try to not be commercial right i mean is it, it, it but the problem is it doesn't look like and you you talk in there about um wells and a couple others in the early days of uh cinema uh that kind of um uh you know were able to keep at it with a vision they had but I don't know. Was was um, was Wells? I, he had a he had pretty big backing, didn't he? I mean, or or, or is that a good example? It feels like Orson Wells doesn't quite relate to an indie uh, filmmaker now. Well, actually, what happened with Orson Wells is that he had obviously huge backing with uh, Citizen Kane, and, uh, right. and then he also started to have backing with uh, Magnificent Ambersons, which was the next RKO feature. But what happened really was that uh, you know he wasn't willing to play any of their games, and he had absolutely oh. uncompromising vision. And so what happened uh, is that he then had to finance his own films after that, and that's why people mistakenly assume that he didn't make anything after Citizen Kane. I mean, he really did, and he was. He he starred in many, many movies also, but he had to finance almost all of his productions and always ran into financial problems. And the other director I mentioned hmm. is John Cassavetes, uh, who, who really acted and then somehow financed his movies. I mean, and these movies really never made any money. I mean, that's the, that's the truth. But, you know, I, I understand, you know, a, a, a film a filmmaker and an actor, they have to make money. It's their job. But I guess we just have to ask ourselves as, as you know, people who look at art, people who read books, you know, watch movies, I think that we have to ask, is this a product? Are we consumers? Or is there something really bigger about this, you know, something more meaningful in all of this? Well, it's a great piece you wrote, and I'm glad you're writing on it. I'm really grateful to American Greatness that they have you do this. It's, uh, the piece is uh, Cinema in a Post-Humanist Age. Ran a few days ago on American Greatness, amgreatness.com. Amina Milanic, thanks for the time today. We'll have you on again, and uh, best wishes. Thank you so much, Ed. Thanks. All right. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our next guest is Dr. Matthew Bunsen. He's the ex- executive director and the D.C. bureau chief of EWTN News. If you don't watch EWTN, you're not smart. Uh, they cover lots of stuff, and they cover it in depth in lots of great ways. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I got an email, I think from one of, uh, maybe from himself or one of his, uh, one of EWTN organization, the news organization, and it was about the bishops meeting and about this question of what the bishops are doing about a so-called Catholic. Catholic, Joe Biden, who's so clearly opposed to Catholic positions and how this is playing out. So I thought we'd get Dr. Matthew Bunsen to come on and talk a little bit about it. So welcome, Dr. Bunsen. How are you? Very good. It's uh, great to be with you. Well, thank you. First, a, a sort of a, a broad question. There's lots of Catholics, uh, too many, that hold positions very publicly that are different than the Catholic teaching. Let's just go specifically with abortion. You know, Nancy Pelosi mm-hmm. could put there, you could pick a senator. And yet uh, the Biden presidency has sharpened this conversation. It appears the bishops uh, that met in, in June are more serious, maybe, about doing something. Tell us the sort of history of this problem, because it's a modern, it's a problem of the last 
well, 45 years since Roe v. Wade, but it's a problem of the last, say, 25 dramatically. And and where why why don't we have this debate over, I mean, you know, out in the, sorry to ramble, but in in Kansas City, Kansas, where Archbishop Joe Nauman is the uh, bishop there, he did have this uh, problem with uh, Governor Sebelius, and he took her to task uh, publicly. But most places, it's sort of not an issue, and yet it, sudden, it suddenly is with Joe Biden. Walk us through that, where we are with this. Yeah, well, actually, first, my congratulations, because, uh, A, you have a, a very good historical memory uh, that uh, Archbishop Nauman did have that conversation with uh, Governor Sebelius at the time. And this is going all the way back to 2008, 2009. And that's important mm-hmm. because it really was something of a milestone uh, for the way bishops uh, can approach this problem. And it's related, of course, to, to President Joe Biden. And that was that uh, he had a private conversation with her. Uh, she refused uh, to change, uh, to sort of embrace what is actual church teaching. Uh, and he was then required to go public with it and asked her publicly not to receive communion. So that was uh, a perfect pastoral approach uh, to the problem, and it's, but it's also a very uh, faithful one to what the Church teaches, but also sort of Church law. And here we are now, uh, 12, 11 years later uh, or so, with uh, Joe Biden uh, in a situation. There are three things that are happening uh, in right. culture that I think influenced uh, the bishops and why they need to do this. The first is the, just the sheer level of polarization in the country and how everything becomes political, including now, unfortunately, the question of the Eucharist. Uh, We have seen some in the secular media and some in even progressive Catholic media uh, who see this as, quote, the weaponization of the Eucharist. But this is really a a political problem as they see it. The second is that we have, sort of flowing from that, uh, President Biden, who is very publicly Catholic, his spokesperson says repeatedly uh, to answer any question uh, relating to Joe Biden and his Catholicity, though he's a devout Catholic who goes to Mass regularly. But he also holds positions that are diametrically opposed to the teachings of the Church. Abortion is the most prominent and preeminent one. But there are also things like right. uh, the issues of family life, so the Equality Act and other things, and the whole of the gender ideology. The third aspect to it, and this is the part where the bishops really come in, that in recent polling, uh, as few as 50% of Catholics, and this is even in our own polling, EWTN News Real Clear Opinion Research, found that only about 50% of Catholics believe in, in the real presence of the Eucharist. So that is a, a catastrophic failure of teaching. So this is really what motivated the bishops to do this. Huh. Uh, again, we're, we're talking with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. And before I forget, he's executive director and the D.C. bureau chief of EWTN News. Um, and before I forget, can you uh, tell us, at, maybe on your website, where people can look more specifically at this? Because I, I want to go on. And so I'll plant that so you can come back to me. But I, I want to ask you about um, whether... And I hate to say this, well, I have some experience with this. I, I once worked for the archdiocese in St. Louis, and I want and I won't tell you which archbishop. It's not the it's not the one you think. Actually, one of them came back from a meeting at the bishops' meeting. He said, "There's not," and he said, "There's nothing good that happens at a meeting 
meaning like you know a committee and then he said except they rarely will get any they they rarely will get anything done meaning you know you won't make usually won't make mistakes so what what's what's the likelihood that the that the bishops co- committee is going to lead i mean and and back to our example archbishop nauman has in his life shown and i know him well from st louis where he came from where he was uh, mm-hmm. born and raised um he 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 did it alone in the sense that he had a he had a uh, one of his in his flock, he said, I'm going to address that. Uh, what are the chances? You know, um, if you technically think about it, I guess Biden is in the, the in the archdiocese of D.C. I don't know. So uh, uh, what are the That's chances right. something real is going to happen? And if not, so, I don't mean punitive, except ex- I, I do. But at least it would make the teaching clearer, because what I've always said, and I'm Catholic, what I've always said is. It's so scandalous, meaning it's so confusing for the faithful to see someone who says that they are Catholic doing something so non-Catholic. And that's the problem. Well, that's uh, that's at the heart of this in so many ways. And and the, the document that the bishops are actually going to be working on, they're drafting it right now, and, and it'll be presented in draft form to all of the bishops at their November meeting in Baltimore. It's expected to be everything in person. Uh, it's going to be focusing uh-huh. on a restatement of what the Church actually teaches, what we believe as Catholics about the Eucharist. And part of that is a thing called Eucharistic coherence. But if you actually believe in the real presence of the Eucharist, you have to be worthy to receive it. That pulls in, it's a, you're a Catholic, the sacrament of penance, that you need to be worthy right. of actually uh, receiving. So, as you note, um, the question from the document side is that they can't mandate who receives communion. In other words, uh, there was this lie that was put out in, in the media, including some Catholic, uh, progressive Catholic media, that this is all about denying Joe Biden communion. It's actually about helping people recapture a sense of the Eucharist. The document can't authorize that somebody is denied communion. That actually does fall, and you've said something again important, that the duty for that would fall to two people. The Archbishop of Washington, where Joe Biden currently resides, that's Cardinal Wilton Gregory, who has already said that he has no intention, at least as of this date, uh, to deny Joe Biden communion. And uh, Bishop-elect Koenig, uh, who is the recently appointed bishop uh, for Wilmington, Delaware. And he's been a little less clear about uh, what he would do, but he started off pastorally by saying, well, I want to have a conversation with Joe Biden, which is sort of in the shadow, sort of in the, in the pattern that we saw with Archbishop Nauman. So we're not sure exactly what he's going right. to do, but the, the likelihood is that he won't. So we're back to that. That's where I think the importance of a kind of teaching document, which is really what this is going to be, uh, is so essential, so that at least the bishops are out there saying, okay, here's what we actually teach. And, and that's going to be the, the important role for them, not trying to wage into uh, a kind of political war, which I think some people think they're doing, which they're not actually trying. Uh, real quickly, just because I, I love doing it on the air, but in in the 1980s, uh, I believe it was, Phyllis Schlafly, the late Phyllis Schlafly, uh, published a pamphlet that said the letter that we wish the bishops had written. I think it was on uh, nuclear uh, 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 arms and all. But, uh, you know, I wonder if there'll be a need in November for somebody to say the letter we wish the bishops would write. But uh, but real quickly, <laughs> less than a minute, uh, uh, <laughs> Dr. Bunsen, again, uh, Matthew Bunsen, and I'll put it up on social media, the, the link to some of this. But tell our people just less than a minute, uh, where can they go to learn more? Is it, does EWTN News on their site have some links to it? Where do you recommend? Oh, very much. Uh, so if you go to EWTNNews.com, 
Uh, you can track all of our entities because we're look, we have been covering this on all of our platforms. Uh, so the National Catholic Register, the Catholic News Agency, and you can actually read our coverage uh, on television and in print and on digital uh, beside uh, exactly what actually happened uh, at the bishops' meeting. So that's ewtnnews.com. And you can also go to ewtn.com uh, for what the church actually teaches about the Eucharist. <laughs> Good. All right, I got to run. I'm getting in my ear. Uh, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, thanks very much. Again, uh, he is the executive editor and D.C. bureau chief of EWTN News, and uh, EWTNnews.com is the site, or EWTN.com, uh, I think, uh, if I got that right. Um, but we'll put it up on social media. Thanks very much, uh, Dr. Bunsen. Appreciate it. Very good to be with you. Okay, we'll take a break, everybody. Be right back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily commentary continuing the conservative pro-family legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. As conservative warriors in the heat of battle, it's sometimes easy to get tunnel vision. We focus on the one foe in front of us with no regard for the heroes of yesteryear. Take a moment to think back to America 100 years ago. Long before the days of Internet, the interstate highway system, microwaves, or jet engines, American patriots were already fighting to defend our American way of life. The communists had gained control of the Soviet Union, Woodrow Wilson had established the precursor to the United Nations, and Planned Parenthood had just been founded under the name American Birth Control League. Yet even as all these looming threats to Western civilization sprang up 100 years ago, a child was born named John K. Singlob. Singlob would grow up to become a major general in the United States Army, an unflappable foe of global communism, and an American hero of unparalleled caliber. He served for years as the chairman of a group called America's Future, Inc., which is dedicated to preserving America's values. Just recently, I witnessed General Singlob handing off the chairmanship of America's Future to the great General Mike Flynn, who carries on that work today. Tomorrow, General Singlob will celebrate his 100th birthday, surrounded by his friends and family and his loving wife, Joan. What do you think the fight for liberty will look like 100 years from now? Will we still be fighting the same battles, or will new ones come to take their place? I don't know the answer to these questions, but I believe that new life is brought into the world every day with just as much potential for heroism as young John K. Singlob had a century ago. As parents, you and I have a profound responsibility to instill our children with a deep-rooted sense of patriotic duty. You may be able to defend liberty today, but our children must defend it tomorrow. That is why the forces of darkness target children so forcefully. They don't want the next century's General Singlob to stand as a bulwark against tyranny. We must make sure they don't succeed. Happy birthday, General Singlob. We thank you for your service to America. May the next century see men and women as courageous as the last. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Whether it's the vision of our founding fathers, the courage of our veterans, the moral compass of Christopher Columbus, or the fortitude of presidents like Lincoln and Reagan, the truth of history should not be undercut by liberal ideology. At Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, we honor history even as we look to the future. Join us at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com.
Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Don't forget, vi- please visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com, and uh, there you will find many of these interviews archived there as well. All these interviews archived there as well as uh, links to what we're doing, and also you can sign up for the daily email, the wink. Uh, as we wrap things up today, I want to point you, first of all, I want to po- I want to point you to somebody who is um, really smart. His name is Eugene Volokh. And if I recollect correctly, he he clerked for the um, he clerked for the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, I think, under Sandra Day O'Connor. And I believe now he's a professor um, at UCLA Law School. I think that's right. Anyway, his brother, Sasha Volokh, who's also very, very smart and I think is a professor also. uh, I I worked with him one summer at the Institute for Justice in Washington, D.C., which was really fun experience. And um, so, but Eugene Volokh uh, writes uh, a blog and uh, and frequently contributes over at Reason. Um, Reason.com is a, a libertarian-leading website, but very smart, uh, also very, very smart. And also, um, the Volokh Conspiracy is a, is a um, blog that, um, that he uh, helps uh, do. So, um, he had a post uh, a couple of days ago that's entitled, Facebook Will Now Ban Criticism. Of And then he quotes their new um, the Facebook's new agreement, the quote concepts, institutions, ideas, practices or beliefs when these said list, quote, harm, intimidate or discriminate against other religious, national other groups. He goes on to analyze in here how Facebook has basically said that they will now police criticism of concepts, institutions, ideas, practices or beliefs. Basically. Everything, Uh, anything that attacks these institutions, these concepts, these beliefs will be uh, subject to being um, blocked and being removed and being uh, and not being promoted. And the point here is the community standards and he cites, he goes through this of Facebook. um, There's just no doubt that they're setting this up for for limiting, you know, the kinds of free speech that, I don't know, conservatives, libertarians, whatever, I, I think actually far left folks too should be worried about this because they have viewpoints that sometimes attack, say, the Catholic Church, an institution. Sometimes it attacks the legal system, an institution. Sometimes it attacks a belief. Sometimes it attacks a... I, I, but it feels like the Facebook um, community standards updates will is aimed at the kinds of criticisms of transgender rights. This is uh, Eugene Volokh writing about it, of, uh, of, of feminism, of all kinds of things. And here's the problem. In the public square, you, you cannot have the government tell you who, you know, what free speech to have. And the point is that at, at a certain point, Facebook, the, the throwback, the, 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 um, the argument thrown in back into your face when you do this is they say Facebook's a private company. But Eugene Volokh's point is that at a certain point, the, the, the size and scope of, um, of Facebook means that they're basically deciding who gets to speak. And he, at the end of it, he says, which leads me to ask again, quote, whose rules should govern how Americans speak with other Americans on a platform that has become quote, a virtually indispensable medium for political discourse and especially in election periods. You see his point? 
Does Facebook, which has an obvious bias, right? Everybody has a bias. There seems to be left leaning, right? There seems to be don't criticize, uh, you know, don't don't allow criticisms of of Biden, uh, the laptop, for example, the Hunter Biden laptop, or or uh, don't be too uh, don't be too uh, outspoken about your concerns on election integrity. Those are positions that they have. And Eugene Volokh's point is they've now laid out a community standard that makes it pretty clear that Facebook is going to target lots of speech. And, and, and again, his, his you know, final paragraph is the one that lays it out best. You know, who are the rules? When Americans are talking to Americans, and especially about elections, especially in the time period around elections, especially about things that really matter to people. I mean... Is it a criticism of an institution or, uh, or, or something that, is, that falls in, the, in, in, in this as a violation? If I say, I don't trust the CDC, they lied to me too much? Does someone then say, oh, no, no, they didn't lie. They, they had some problems. They adjusted. You can't say that. Is that what they say? I mean, again, where does this stop? And who has the favor? And what it feels like, and I heard uh, someone else make this argument, it feels like Facebook is going to censor on behalf of of the government because the government's the one that has the power even for facebook the government's the one and it, this comes down to the oldest racket that we know in american politics and that is the incumbency and the and the and the professional class the ruling class has the power usually to decide what's in this is uh, to decide what's good and what's bad for us and we can't make a difference it feels like by the way this is another criticism we've seen about um how Republicans complain about all the big tech giants, and then when it's finally time for them to do something, they have the wherewithal, which they have right now. They they kind of hem and haw, and they don't actually do it. They didn't actually do much under under Trump, in terms of major things in Congress when they had the power. And it's because you know it's like uh, it's like, I'll tell you this. It's like an incumbent Republican congressman told me. He said, "Oh no, no, no! There was no fraud in the elections. Look how many our our good guys won because we're good at messaging." And I wanted to say, "Well, it could be, it could be, or it could be that." They really weren't focused on worrying about uh, kind of stealing house races or influencing house races. They were focused on the big race because they knew once they got that power, they got the power. And we talked about it earlier. So they'll unmask their enemies. They'll target their enemies. They'll use the power. They'll put people in jail. They've got people in jail in Washington, D.C., rotting in jail for misdemeanors, for nonviolence, because they say that they have positions that are so antithetical to the American uh, to the American system, they have to be held. I don't know. I don't know. It's pretty frightening. All right, everybody. I want to say thank you, as always, to our great, great producer, the great Noah Dingley, and also Joanna for booking our guests. Please visit ProAmericaReport.com again and again. Sign up there for the Daily Wink, and we will be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro America Report. America Report on The Answer, San Diego.